Hi, Matt. Love listening to your show. He lives in East Gippsland, so out my way. Did, did you notice that um, he refers to it as my show, Prof? Yeah, I just actually just, gla- um, just glazed over that, actually. Thanks to Cryer Malt, a grain of truth in every podcast. This is Good Brews Week. I'm your host, Pete Mitchum, and joining me today is Matt Kierkegaard. Morning, Matt. Morning, Prof. And joining us today, um, I'm pleased to say he's only an associate professor, but at least he's a real one. So we've got a prof and an associate prof. Uh, the associate professor, Andre Samartino, who is the associate professor in international business and strategic management at the University of Melbourne. Andre, welcome to Good Brews Week. G'day, guys. Very happy to be here. And mate, you'd be fairly happy too. Uh, we should point out, for uh, particularly for our AFL-based uh, listeners, that um, the Roos are probably doing a little bit better than you expected that they would be at this point, um, say, last year. Oh, that's very fair to say, yes. Uh, I had low expectations of the North Melbourne Football Club this season, but uh, they've exceeded them by a great, a great distance. Well, hopefully your low expectations of uh, what's it going to be, what it was going to be like to be invited on as a co-host for Good Brews Week are, are also similarly exceeded. Well, I can only hope. <laughs> All right, strap yourself in, we'll see how we go. Um, gentlemen, making news in brews this week. We're going to look at a new freight service that gets your beer from there to here and back. A new centre of brewing excellence for Brisbane proves that uh, Queensland can embrace marketing cliches, if nothing else. Small brewers are embroiled in a new beer wars. And can you really taste the ownership? Uh, Matt, Andre, let's start off. Perhaps uh, we'll get the um, first one out of the way. Those who joined us at the Cryo Malt Brewers Hub at uh, Fed Square, up at um, upstairs at Beer Deluxe during Good Beer Week, and were lucky enough to pop in on our seminar, would have heard uh, Rick Dexter with a question from the floor. Uh, many people will know Rick as the director of the Ballarat Beer Festival for the last couple of years, but he's involved. He's been involved in freight forwarding uh, as his as his main kind of gig for for, for a while now, and he's joined up with Lickex to um, provide a service whereby cold chain logistics by sea. We're sending. We're able to send beer from um, from the eastern seaboard across to Perth without having to traverse the Nullarbor. Good thing, bad thing. Oh, mate, it's a, it, it's a great thing, and you know, like it's one of those things that's probably not the most riveting radio um, that you'd unless you're a brewer who wants to get your beer um, in good condition across the Nullarbor, of course. But uh, yeah, no, it was just interesting that it, it was um, flagged at our session. Um, that it was something that we didn't know about going into the session, so it was quite interesting. But it does show. Um, to me that you know as the beer market matures and craft um, you know the, the, this idea of craft or beers that you know need to go a long way are becoming embedded in in, in the fabric of the beer industry um, that we are seeing all of these uh, structural changes in the industry to accommodate it and uh, it, you know it, 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 it's apparently it's very expensive to send beer across the Nullarbor um, and then you've also got you know the the, the issues of cold freighting um, because it's a hot place so yeah no, I just thought it was a really interesting service I don't know about you Matt I was I was particularly surprised to hear that this is a first of its kind for for Australia I, I just assumed that um, we had already sort of freighted by sea but uh, craft beer or beer in general and I have to say I'm probably going a little bit out of my uh, you know range of expertise uh, or even sort of confident assertion um, but I, I just think because of the mechanics of sea freight um, that 
it's much more expensive to set, to send smaller loads um, because you've got these you know just big ships, big containers, and unless you're taking a uh, FCL or a full container load, um, it can be really hard for small brewers to send small amounts of beer. So it's it, it's good if you're sending big volumes of beer, not so good if you're selling, sending smaller volumes of beer. And it's also um, you know a little bit com- more complicated than just delivering it to your local. Um, truck haulage company and getting it across and getting it delivered um, is my understanding. So it sounds like what Rick uh, or Richard has been working on is making, you know, tailoring a service that's ship bound to smaller brewers so they don't you know. So he's going to be aggregating and sending, um, you know, to, to enable uh, smaller brewers with smaller loads to access the uh, that service efficiently is my understanding. Yeah, I think the the wording that Rick used in the in the article that appeared in Brews News was um, they're aiming at a regular scheduled uh, service offering space by the pallet for small brewers, mm. and it makes sense too. I guess um, I don't know kind of how it all works, but presumably, is it oh, Andre? You're probably better placed to um, to talk about this from a you know, business and management point of view. Um, is it fairly easy also to then you know we're sending a ship over? Um, there's lots of beer being made in WA, and they can then I guess you know fill the empty containers on the way back. Yeah, that was that was my response to that news. I, yeah, like you guys, I, I must admit, embarrassingly, I hadn't given that much thought to the question of, of sea freight. Um, it comes up with regards to Australia and New Zealand and back, but I hadn't thought about it from from major city to major city. Um, yeah, absolutely. I would have thought, you know, the, the the Western Australian brewers should be rubbing their hands together to some extent. You know, empty can but not quite empty containers coming back otherwise. But um, there's certainly you would think there's just as much likelihood of the product coming back the other way. Um, and I guess if we go back in time, you know, this could have been how we would have got Hop Hog well before we did over here on the, on the East Coast because um, the story was always that they weren't going to, sh- they didn't want to put it on, put it across the Nullarbor. So, um, yeah, it's an exciting thing. And, and, you know, I guess for anyone who's been at Gab's in the last few weeks and looking at those big container bars, you think of most, most craft brewers couldn't fill one of those with their output in a month. So um, you can see why so few beers currently get back and forth across. So um, yeah, to think that a pallet can go in one of these and, and lots of different pallets, um, is, it's pretty exciting times. Um, now, having said that, the Western Australian brewers presumably will be looking at a lot more competition as well. Yeah, exactly. But I guess the the upside is that they're also then able to put their beers into, into the I guess what you could argue is not a more competitive market. There are certainly more beers available on the on the east coast than, say, take you know Perth or Rio mm. as, as an example. But you also then have far more drinkers, I guess, who are conditioned yeah. To, yeah. to to look for for choice and range. Yeah, I guess the point. Yeah, there's there's dramatically more drinkers on the east coast for the west coast brewers to to now target. So yeah, because there's a lot of stuff over there we never see over here in Melbourne and and up in Sydney and Brisbane. So exciting time yeah. for the beer tickers. Yeah, so that's um, we should have pointed out for um, for Rick's benefit um, and for our listeners. So Blue Freight is the um, is the name, Matt. I think is it, uh, and it'll be in the show notes. Project here, so. Logistics. Yeah, and it'll be in the show notes. So um, look, brewers who are who are keen to, I guess, look into getting their beer better stewardship. So obviously, you know, mm. cool and all that sort of thing, um, and and hoping to arrive in a better condition. And at the end of the day, like we say, being offered a service that that wasn't previously available, um, get in touch with um, with the guys, and uh, best of British luck to you. You said something else early on, and I think it's it's something that I must say, as someone sort of watching the industry for a long time, it's it is really interesting to see the entrepreneurship in the supply chain rather than just in the brewing outside the end of it. 
the you know in many ways the emergence of the whole mobile canning and so forth is a similar sort of story in terms of really opening up opportunities that I think probably many of us had never thought about. And that's one of the reasons that I flagged this to discuss, you know, more so than the, the, the logistics, just showing how um, we are seeing industries growing up around an industry that, you know, 10 or 15 mm. years ago, people may not have uh, had too much confidence in the longevity of it. And when you start seeing, as you as you indicate, you know, um, mobile canning or logistics uh, and, and those sorts of areas, we are in, you know, uh, businesses like Kegstar um, setting up, you know, yeah, yeah. with, with um, making it easy for, for for Kegstar to move around. We are seeing a whole support network or a whole business um, support industry growing up to support it. And, and in, in some ways, that was the premise of our logistics uh, discussion: was logistics chains that we've seen craft beer start into grew up around highly centralised breweries that were sending beer yeah. um, nationally. Um, and craft beers had to fit into that to some stage. We are now starting to see the industry make structural changes to support uh, craft, and that's a really positive sign uh, for the industry. Uh, Ricky Thompson from uh, LickX also sort of pointed out that in the past couple of years, they've not only doubled but then doubled again um, both their capacity but also their um, cold capacity. Mm. And that's obviously they're not going to, you know, they're spending millions, but they're not going to do that on something that, that they think is a, is a lame duck. Um but obviously, but, but but by the same token, it still very much, I guess, shows that that there's a symbiotic relationship as as craft is sort of maturing and getting a little bit more traction and growth. Um, that's great to see that yeah, these ancillary industries, the you know the supply chain is um, is working alongside. So it, um, it I guess everyone wins. Absolutely, and you know that's where um, you know people talk about competition in, and sometimes the concept is limited to price, but when you do have so many beers available these days and we are seeing you know most brewers have a pale ale of some you know like a an american pale ale of some description maybe a golden uh, or a summer ale of some description um, and we're seeing increasingly lagers that when you've got you know a lot of brewers making good quality beers um, in around the same uh, flavor profiles um, some venues are going to buy on price but others, and increasingly we're seeing great bottle shops asking, has this been cold stored? Or, you know, what are the cold chain logistics? Complaining when it turns up on the back of a ute in the middle of summer. Um, and when you do have cold chain logistics and people are starting to adopt cold chain, um, then that creates a pressure on other brewers to do it. And ultimately, I think that's um, better for the industry that because it's, it's locking in, you know, quality... Um, elements in the distribution chain and not just um, having the the, the chain uh, catering down to a price so I, yeah look I, I think those sorts of things are fantastic um, for the industry and uh, you know if craft beer is better then better logistics chains um, are, are good for that product one other little thing that was just an aside in your article about the blue freight guys that intrigued me as an international business scholar um, is that they're looking to gear this up with boats to China as well. My understanding, Andre, is that Rick, through his um, existing company, they've been sending mm. um, sending beer to China, and that's why I guess they've sort of said, okay, well, if we can send it to China and meet that demand, mm. then, um, yeah, we can we can extend it. So um, interesting to see, though, I heard yesterday, I was listening to, um, uh, to Ross Greenwood, 
um, talking about how there's a the wine industry at the moment is is perhaps suffering a little bit that China might be punishing Australia for for, uh, yeah. for other matters yeah. by um, refusing to accept imports from I think three or four different um, wine companies wine yeah exporters oh, yeah. yeah Treasury wines have been uh, had a profit downgrade on the basis of it yeah. Are they saying, well, you know, that's we'll, we'll hit them where it hurts in that sort of that, that prestige end, but you know, no, keep, keep sending your beer. Yeah, hard to know. I suspect the beer is not on the radar. Yeah, until beer becomes a big enough import that they can actually hurt us, and that's why you hear a lot of discussion about brewers exporting. And even uh, on beer as a conversation this week, we talked to Kegstar about, you know, they through their network um, to New Zealand and the US and the UK, they can facilitate one way, you know, essentially one way kegs because you're not responsible for getting your kegs back from overseas. The situation with China shows that if you build a business with a significant export then there are a whole lot of things that are completely outside of your control that your business becomes uh, beholden to, um, including, you know, the geopolitical um, situation. And, you know, China can hold your business at ransom, essentially, just because, you know, the Australian government wants to send ships through the China Sea or, um, you know, doesn't want to put uh, Taiwan on, on, on the map of China and those sorts of things that you just can't plan for but can really hurt a business that's based on export. Yeah, it actually probably throws into sharp uh, focus uh, something that Richard Watkins from, from Benspoke uh, said at both Melbourne and Sydney Gab's seminars at, at Craft Beer College. He's a firm believer that there really are only two viable or sustainable business models for, for brewers in Australia. You're either a small brew pub service you know part of your local community and just getting your beer out locally or you know 90 percent um through your through taps you know coming out of your own um bright beer tanks the other option is that you're a big really big and you uh, a massive production brewery who sends your beer everywhere presumably including overseas andre does that kind of track square with you um I certainly buy the first one. I, I think, yeah, I, I actually wrote a piece for a, a US blog a couple of months ago about this, just for a mate of mine. And uh, I was reflecting on that. Yeah, the, I would argue, sort of, yeah, the hyper local uh, brew pub type setup, you know, very small sphere of sort of fame, if you will, I think is, yeah, an extremely viable model. Um, the larger scale one, it, it's harder to know. Um, it depends a little bit on what the end game is. You know, I know discussions about pirate life in the last couple of weeks you know in many ways depends a little bit on whether that's actually a whether it's a a viable long-term model or whether it's a nice way to get taken over um i think the one he's missing potentially um is the the very very niche uh very very specific um beer style type setup. And I would throw someone like Wildflower into that um, category. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking of. La Serene, um, you know, a few others like that, where you could imagine, you know, and someone like La Serene from, in particular, you know, they've got distribution into the US through Shelton. You know, that's that's the model of the sort of beers that we see from some places in the world, um, whether it's out of Scandinavia. And to some extent with that model, you're relying on the strength of your brand um, as much as the, you know, novelty or interest in your beers to create the demand so you're not uh, because you know when you look at you know sales rep um, is getting paid you know 
35 to 60,000, you know, just a fairly low, low end sales rep um, mm. is getting paid 35 to 60,000, depending on hours and um, bonuses and uh, those sorts of things. That's a lot of beer that you need to sell. Um, and, you know, you sort of see it uh, in, in Brisbane um, that there are some, a lot of the local breweries are getting picked up um, and taking those cha- rotating taps because a lot of the bars want to support their own. Um, and it's yeah. you've got to make a lot of sales calls um, as a rep on the ground trying to pick up those uh, changing taps. And I just think that for a lot of uh, breweries, that's just an uneconomical um, practice, unless you yeah. do have a brand that's so strong that the pubs are actually phoning. You, you don't need to make sales calls because the pubs um, and the bars are, are phoning you to get your beers on. Or, or you've found a way to, to package your beer in such a way that you can that uh, you can charge a lot more for it. So, yeah, middle least costly. But, yeah, you know, and, and I wouldn't want to harp on the wildflower example. I'm not sure how many more wildflowers we'll ever see. Um, but, you know, ability to have a, a bottle that's selling for $25, $30 is, you know, and not and not appearing on tap anywhere because it's bottled product um, is sort of, I guess, a nice model. It's just hard to know how it scales. Yeah, yeah, and I guess Tope, Tope is a, well, look, a, a, unique, yeah, a unique example as well because he's 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 well, uh, not so much a brewer as a blender, so he's buying wort yeah. in, so he doesn't have to have the the same amount of stainless, for example, as a uh, as the small brewer has. Um, nor does he need that sort of you know. I guess he's got the retail side of things, but he doesn't have the hospitality uh, element to that, mm. um, which I think is fairly important as well. Because obviously, you know, you know, I look at an example like. Um, well, it's stomping ground. You know, there are plenty of people there who come for the food and stay for the beer, or you know, that um, or, or oh, the absolutely. other way around. Yeah. So I think that having that extra stream of revenue um, is thing. And I think Richard Watkins' point was there's perhaps too many in that middle ground who are, you know, boasting that I'm getting my beer to Western Australia and into China. But hang on, if it's not at the RSL up the road, or if it's not in the the you know the the restaurant opposite you. You know, how sustainable is that? Oh, look, yeah, and, and I guess back to my pirate life example, and I, I'm not I'm not picking on pirate life as, at all. I'd be I'm very no, <laughs> but it's a great example. Their, yeah, the big boy the big boys have been very choosy about who they they pick up. They pick up the ones that yeah have a product that can appear on bottle shop shelves in RSLs, but also in in hipster bars around the corner. They're they're picking the the breweries that are everything to everyone. Um, they're not yet picking off the the Lasserines or or the like, um, and I don't think they will for a long time, if it, if ever in Australia. Um, yeah, because so that's more of a we'll like sort of change topic a bit, but yeah. No, no, no. Well, I think we we'll probably get into the uh, the ownership side of things next because I mean, you know, the the thing I learned during Good Beer Week was that you know, uh, using Pirate Life again as an example, you know, woke up after the the AB InBev. Um, buyout to to find that you know they've got 484 extra tap points all of a sudden so i mean that's a massive you know that's wow. that's the yeah. sort of thing that you kind of <laughs> dream of you know we, we look yeah. at oh, however many other brewers are around um and presumably a similar sort of thing has happened for, for four pines they're now in places where you know they perhaps you know would have had to keep knocking on doors and ah, nah, sorry we've got a contract or nah look you know it's not what people are after you know whatever it might be so you know yeah um can you really taste the ownership Matt, Goose um, Island, still craft beer? And does anyone care? Yeah, look, and it was because Andre's written a really interesting article uh, in the past about the sort of, you know, the, the, the dynamics of the international uh, beer industry. But I, I, I keep coming back to when the independent 
uh, seal was launched by the uh, Independent Brewers Association. The big brewers' response uh, was a feigned yawn saying people only care about price and um, quality. And if that was the case, Matilda Bay Alpha Pale Ale would be the biggest selling pale ale in the country um, because it was a crackingly good pale ale and they had the capacity to brew it at a good price. And the simple fact is that it didn't. Um, and because you need a story and you need some truth to the and integrity to the story, and that was something that CUB was never able to create. Um, and yet, you know, they've done that very well with Great Northern, which is the beer from up here and does everything it can to look like it is brewed in cans, even though it's brewed in Yaddler. And, and brewed by, is it the legendary brewing company? Uh, is that no, that, or is that that's Iron Jack. Iron Jack. Um, yeah, again. Yeah. So, um, and and they know that you know if it's only price and quality, then why make up a fictitious name for your brewery um, to, to to sell it? Um, and yeah, you know, they're, they're not bad beers. They're no, nothing like that. But people do resonate with a story, with an integrity, and that can come in a whole lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be you know two mates got brewing in their garage and a, you know hand bottling all of their beers. It doesn't have to be that. But there has to be a story in some capacity. And it is much harder to have a story when you are a multinational organisation that's just rolling stuff out. So on, on that level, um, independence does have value. It's not the be-all and end-all in terms of quality. It's not a qualitative state, uh, statement. But the other reason that independence matters is the independents tend to be a much smaller um, operation. And they do tend to, um, you know, play a lot more in the margins um, and you know you, you see the number of beers that have sold in volumes that would keep a small brewery afloat being killed off by the big brewers because it's not it's not growing or it's not making them sufficient money and ultimately the only reason that the big brewers uh, the multinational brewers are interested in the pirate lives of the world is because small brewers um tapped into this unmet uh, desire for, for the beers and exploited it. And the, the big brewers ignored craft beer for, for a long time, then they made fun of it, and once they saw that it was actually becoming a market segment that wasn't going to go away, then they started buying into it. Um, but they weren't interested in actually investing in developing and growing that market um, heavily for the way that small brewers would. And if... There isn't the competition from small brewers that are, that's uh, commanding the attention of consumers. Then we will see, you know, big brewers would, just as they wanted to make one type of lager that had 17 different um, skews for it, um, but, you know, essentially one beer stream, um, they would love to have one golden ale and not have to sort of try and attract a bigger market. But small independent brewers keep them focused on, on that market, and that is good for beer generally, but we need to have our small brewers around and supporting small brewers that are maybe making more expensive beer is the way to do that. Huh. Yeah. Andre, <laughs> does, the, does the limitation of the, um, the IBA's seal of independence um, in that it's, it requires IBA membership, does that, uh, I guess, diminish the value of it? I guess, taking one step back, I guess the, the initial question was about I guess the shift to the term independent, and I must say I, I'm delighted that independence become the term rather than craft, because I think the problem with craft is it's just such a nebulous term and it's so prone to misuse. Whereas the independent, I think, carries a clearer understanding amongst, I guess, the man in the street, if you will, the woman in the street, 
but just more generally, it, it hangs it hangs the whole identity on a, on a singular point rather than sort of this multi-faceted definition about um, what the beer looks like, tastes like, and the sort of vibe of the thing. Um, so I, I, I'm delighted they've gone down the independent path. Um, the IBA thing, IBA membership, look, I can see why that might annoy a few people who might sort of say that, you know, you, you're keeping me out of the club, but it's not clear, not clear the IBA is denying genuinely independent brewers membership. Um, so if someone doesn't want to play in the gang, then I can see why they shouldn't be allowed to seal, if you see what I mean. They can still call themselves independent. Um, and if they are, are independent, then no one's going to call them out on it. Um, and I, look, I, I like what the independent distinction reflects. I think it probably resonates a little more clearly in terms of some of the the typical um, conversations we have in this space. You know, it more accurately captures the idea of some sort of anti-corporate sentiment. Um, it, it speaks to sort of the anti-big business sentiment, the sort of concern that there's some sort of power dynamic in play. Um, it evokes the idea that the founders are somehow involved, although, of course, that's a little bit um, murky. Um, <laughs> they they and, still want to talk about Chuck yeah, Hart. Yes, well, exactly. But uh, look, in the end, I think it's one of these things where, unlike the craft definition where it was always a little bit in the eye of the beholder, you know, I can probably justify why I would call that craft beer. It's a little bit harder in this space to be to uh, muddy the the waters and you know back to your all of your examples about the sort of crafty um, efforts of big beer um, to either and you know we shouldn't just say big beer it's also the big retailers um, to make up brands and and sort of try and evoke some image of of an artisan brewer somewhere um, in this instance any of the big guys who try and I, what what will happen is they can't be in the conversation about their notion of independence because clearly they've got nothing to say to protect themselves. At best, they can do what you said, which is sort of shrug their shoulders and say, well, it doesn't matter. Um, but the proof will be in, in to what extent we start to see the seal around the way, um, whether, you know, uh, it becomes something we see up on walls in pubs or, or wherever it might be. Yeah, it's, gonna, it's not going to change the world, but it's going to at least give someone the ability to hang, the, hang their hat on it. And it does actually do a good job of demonstrating the question of what happens when a you know, yeah, I want to say craft brewer, an independent brewer is taken over, because all of a sudden it's very clear that they are losing their independence, and it becomes a conversation then about what does it mean to lose your independence, and you know, that's at least a healthy conversation because if if anything, you know, back to your examples for the last few weeks where you've been talking about mountain goat and pirate life and so on. Yeah, it gives them perhaps even even as the you know the acquired firm the ability to say, but here's an example of how we've maintained our independence in terms of our brewing activity. So at least the right conversation stays in play. And that's where I think uh, you know it's going to take some time to see the logo roll out on bottles and cans just oh, because yeah. of the, the the packaging, but. Having it available in bottle shops and having it available, and I, and I believe Dan Murphy's uh, indicated that they were um, open to putting it on on, on the shelves um, there. And but having it at tap yeah. points um, where one of the 
in my view, one of the key reasons that the uh, large breweries are buying the small breweries is to create that illusion in, uh, you know, in pubs that the pub has a selection of craft beers because consumers have shown that they do want a selection and they want different beers. And that had started to see publicans you know, lowering the number of taps that they were willing to contract, um, which then put up the, the, the high-volume mainstream beers um, to, to play as well. So by having you know, Pirate Life, Four Pines, Carlton Draft, um, and you know, Cascade potentially, plus the, the mainstream offerings um, you know, on a tap handle, it gave the appearance that in the pub you've got a selection. If suddenly the two or three independent taps are spouting this little independent logo, it, it actually issues a challenge to people. You know, does independence matter or do you just want to drink what you normally drink? And, it, and, and I think that that will be a really, really powerful statement. It's going to be interesting to see how the big brewers react when publicans start putting a independent tap clip over the, um, you know... Um, on, on, on a beer that's sitting beside Kosciuszko Pale Ale um, and whether that draws the eye and therefore the purchasing dollar um, to, to the uh, uh, independent beer. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I think it's exciting. Um, and, you know, there, there's a few really blurry things at the edges and, you know, there's been a few... I know, again, there was a discussion last week about Gage Roads um, and, you know, even the question of Coopers because they're independent. There's nothing we can... Yeah, we hard-pressed to, to explain them as not independent, but they won't get the seal because they're too big. Yeah. Um, now, that's just an interesting it, it, And, and that's just where, where you slice the cake, um, really. So, and, and I think Coopers does a very good job of reinforcing that they are <laughs> family-owned and that, you know, whilst they don't, yeah. they're not small to fit in the IBA definition, they are still independent and they, they occupy almost that netherworld um, space between... Uh, you know, of, of being too big to be small, but they're still independent. I'd love the IBA to, to have a, oh, and I'm sure they probably are having a conversation with them, but um, I'd be intrigued to know whether the brewer, the, the current membership of IBA would be unhappy for Coopers to join. Well, realistically, or I, I guess from a from a definition point of view, Andre, is it is the whole point kind of they're saying that too much of a good thing is 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 bad? So, like, I've always had a problem with the volumetric thing, you know. So, so um, you know, if Stone and Wood makes a beer that I really like, and then all of a sudden they, you know, they get a government grant and they sell more beer and they become successful and sustainable, they build a bigger brewery, and all of a sudden they're one stubby over a nominal amount. Now, now they're no longer eligible. They're no longer independent. They're no longer. Uh, well, what will, what will happen presumably? We've, we've got a very strange scenario in Australia, which is just simply that Coopers are very large. If you go to the Brewers Association examples in the US, what they've just consistently done is just ramp the number up. So because the, the association predates the, the, the boom, if you will, um, you know, every time Sierra Nevada and others get larger, the definitional barrel size just keeps climbing. Um, we just have such a gulf, I guess, in Australia between, you know, Coopers would be seven or eight Coopers times larger than the next, from yeah. my understanding, seven or eight times but larger than But it's and, and, you know, tiny, like tiny by US standards. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So <laughs> everyone in Australia would qualify, including yeah, the ABM and, brewery. So. Australia actually exceeds the US now uh, for, for number of breweries per capita. 
um, you know, yeah. despite the fact that the US has, you know, nearly 7,000 and we've got, you know, 450, whatever. But per capita, you know, we're, we're actually batting alongside them. Why volume makes you all of a sudden, you know, a, a worthy brewer versus, well, hang on, one too many, not a worthy brewer. Interested to get our, um, our, our listeners' feedback on, you know, it, does the volumetric measurement actually, you know, does that track square with you guys? Well, I've got one for you, and I'm, and I'm sure your readers, uh, listeners, because um, I did a bit of scouting around for some numbers when, when I was reading the definitional thing. Brewdog as landing in Australia, um, what they're go- whether they're going to qualify or not. The, the IBA stuff is silent on, ownership, on uh, nationality of ownership, from my understanding. It just requires the beers to be brewed in Australia. So now... Uh, okay. Globally, globally, it would appear Brewdog's at about 37, 38 million a year ago, litres, which would be just under the threshold globally. Um, they've probably passed it by now, I'm sure, and they probably will by by the time they finish their, their facility in, in Queensland. But it's just that intriguing example. You know, once they're brewing in Australia, um, are they an Australian brewery? And does it only anyway, count? I don't yeah, does 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 their total then count or only what's, you know, registered as being brewed in, in Australia? I guess yeah, that's but I guess needs then, clarification. Then they might get, they might get stung on the, because the independence is about not being owned by someone who brews more than 40 million. Now, again, oh, of course, it's silent yeah, yeah. on yeah. Where, that, where that occurs. So it's, oh, look, it's a, it's a fun game to play to some extent. In the garden, what a garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. Matt, while we're in Brisbane and um, and talking about Brewdog's uh, imminent entry into the market in Brisbane, um, also announced this week a new centre of uh, collaboration brewing for <laughs> Brisbane. Now the the, uh, the the descriptor has uh, copped a bit of flack, and I have to stress that it, that actually wasn't theirs. It was a um, it was initially Brisbane Brewing Hub was the name of the, uh, the the precinct when we got the media release. But then when we followed it up to do the story, we'd been told it was uh, had been changed to something else because there was already somebody calling themselves Hub Brewing. Um, and so to, you know, oh. to sort of keep things nice. So um, and, and then the the new name that they were putting out there, or the, the, the new description they'd been putting out there was a little bit confusing. So that collaborative brewing centre or centre of collaboration um, was an editorial uh, line that I used to um, try and describe it. Because, yeah, it sounds like um, it's a, um, on one level, a contract brewing space um, setting up in Brisbane. Um, they've put a price figure of $15 million. We're digging down a little bit deeper into what that, uh, whether that's brewing equipment or, you know, a lot more. Um, but... Yeah, um, it's a new facility. There's apparently going to be three different size brew kits. Um, they're going to be looking at providing contract brewing services, but it sounds like they're also looking at becoming a home or an incubation hub for um, you know 
gypsy brewers, people who want to go in and brew themselves and be much more hands-on. So kind of timeshare, would you, do you envisage that, you know, uh, you and I and Andre want to start up a two profs and a mat brewing company uh, and we want to start brewing our beer, we, we basically buy timeshare? Yeah, that, that, that's how it sounds, um, how, how it actually works, because uh, Ian Watson, um, when I replied to a comment on that last night, Ian Watson from Slipstream uh, weighed in and said he'd be very surprised if that was a model that they were going to run, you know, letting children play on, you know, you know inverted commas, children play on, yeah. um, you know, the, on the big boys' toys. On the big boys' toys, but I'm sure that's the way that they're talking, um, and that's the way that they're uh, they, they seem to be moving. And whether how they manage that um, remains to be seen. But uh, it, look, it, it sounds like an interesting uh, an interesting thing. There are a lot of brewers that have small venues, or a lot of brewers that have. Uh, um, contract only arrangements in southeast Queensland, and it sounds like it might be catering to them. But they also did say that you know bars or you know bigger chains that wanted to have their own house beer could get it made there. Um, Southern brewers who, having talked about logistics and the cost thereof, um, who wanted to have their beer delivered fresh beer in, in Queensland, but Queensland. Yeah, can you brew it up there for me rather than me yeah sending it up? So yeah. for those who don't know, Morningside Matt, is this an existing? facility or is this a no, no, big it's, it, pile it's, of dirt it's somewhere that they're going to build on okay yeah so so it's a new facility morningside is uh out towards the bay um it's 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 east um of the city and uh yeah it, it's an interesting area to put it um, because there is some uh, commercial spaces there but it's also uh, quite a residential area as well so uh yeah no, interesting space it's getting out towards the brew dog planned venue um, so, uh, yeah, no, it's just a, it, it was very interesting news um, and something that I'd been hearing rumours about and it suddenly popped up um, to the surface uh, last week. Now, the fellow that's putting in the application does think that he's going to be up and running by the end of the year. Um, we're now in June. Um, he's only just put his council permits in um, and I would be very surprised. He says he's 100% confident. I would be very surprised if uh, council just ticks the boxes uh, straight away on on a, on a that sort of venue. You go. Is this a, a business person or a, somebody in the in the beer business or with no, a, somebody, with a to it yeah, or? just just somebody in the business got a background in home brewing. So uh, yeah, no, we're digging a little bit deeper um, at, at this stage just to find out a little bit more because it is such an interesting story. We uh, we we just sort of put the the basic uh, proposal, you know, what, what he was proposing, and then uh, digging a little bit deeper. So on those two, Matt, the the Brewdog one and and this one, will either of them have a, a hospitality or you know like a cellar door or a tap room, a restaurant, a bar, or is it is it, are they just going to be production breweries? Um, Brewdog absolutely absolutely will. Brewdog has a tap room, you know, hotel um, component like a. Uh, it's going to be a significant hospitality component. And this week, we've also seen Brewdog um, go to Facebook, go to social media, asking uh, you know, people or incentivizing people to find their next um, couple of bars. You know, So the rollout for the Brewdog bars has already started. In Brisbane? In Well, in Brisbane and uh, nationally, I think. Uh, yeah, so uh, they're looking... And that was the interesting thing. When Brewdog announced a $30 million brewery, um, that was the big announcement that the government made. Um, my understanding was that the brewery component was only around about $10 million, um, and it's never been fully answered what the balance of that $30 million investment would be. And that sounded like it was going, to be, it was going towards a significant rollout of Brewdog bars. 
um, nationally, which is part of the game plan. Which if I was like if, if I was craft brewers, on one hand, it's very exciting for Brisbane that Brewdog has shone a spotlight on Brisbane, and Brewdog is going out there collaborating with a lot of brewers at the moment for that feel good. You know, we're the good guys of the craft beer industry. But then the biggest part of what they're doing is this Brewdog uh, pub empire. Um, that whilst it does have collaborations with uh, small brewers and offers space to small brewers, he's actually going to put a lot of fully independent uh, beer venues out of business, I suspect. Exactly, just kind of the nature of competition, the capitalist system. Have you guys been to one of these Brewdog pubs around the way? Mate, I did. I think I, I, it was Rome or Florence, and I was left with the impression, I was actually, when Prof and I have discussed this in the past, I was left with the impression, well, okay, this... I've left the streets of Florence, which is one of the most magnificent mm, yeah. you know, cities in the world, and walked into a place that I could be, you know, it's like walking into an airport. When you're in an airport, you could be anywhere in the world. Um, and Brewdog was a little yeah. bit like that. Um, and it, it, it's a fairly... Yeah, it's the, the Irish pub of the, of the next generation. The, 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 the craft beer uh, Irish okay. pub, yeah. The- Plastic McPaddy's pretend Irish pub. We were, well, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's a little bit more substance. It's not quite there. And, and in many ways, it almost—it's funny. I've walked into enough craft beer pubs around the world that look like they're mimicking a Brewdog bar. That you could—it's almost <laughs> a circular process. I can't help but think there'll be a. There's sort of a bit of a stepping stone. It's a little bit of a gateway um, venue scenario where I, I can't imagine that the hardcore craft drinkers, independent beer drinkers, um, are going to all of a sudden embrace them. But you can imagine them. Certainly, eating eating the the dinner of a few more larger bars that that sort of are just your you know after after work um, hangouts. Uh, I, I see I see craft beer geeks um, embracing them because they just have that hype factor about them, and they and they they make amazing you know they make really good beers and they make really interesting beers as well and they're very good at promoting yeah, that so yeah. so I, I actually see that I, I i see that they are going to um do that quite well um and it is going to up the, yeah. the comp- competition bar as prof says there is a two-way street to competition but i uh, you know at the moment there, there is a you know inherent quality about them but they do have a substantial uh private equity um, investment in oh, there, yeah. and so long as the organic growth is going, um, it's going to go quite well. But I, I mean, I just sort of look at the you know, Bavarian beer cafe franchise around the country. You know, it was a, a smallish sort of um, group for a while, and uh, you know, they they did a pretty good job of popularising a German experience. Um, you know, it was good beer. The food was you know good and authentic German. Um, you know, there's that sort of slightly tacky, you know, slutty dirndl. Thing to the waitresses and things mm-hmm. but you know, by and large it was a pretty good place to get good quality beer and good quality german food they've had a major you know they've been bought out by private equity lately and i don't know if you've seen it recently yeah. um that the marketing has just gone completely downhill you know whilst they used to have a you know german schnitzel these days it's all dirty schnitz and uh you know 20 20 cent wings and it, it could basically be an AL, a, an alh pub for germany you know a german themed alh pub these days yeah yeah I sit on the fence on the Brewdog stuff. Um, I think actually they make pretty good beer um, and they're very strong entrepreneurs. Um, and my limited experience with the Brewdog pubs, particularly in the UK and conversations with brewers in the UK, is you know, they're surprisingly collaborative and they're also surprisingly hands-off from my understanding. 
that, you know, if you run a BrewDog pub locally, um, often you will get quite a lot of autonomy about what's on tap and who you who you reach out to and so forth. And a lot of a lot of the British sort of independent beer scene has been driven by people who ran BrewDog pubs for a while and then went out on their own. So, you know, weirdly, I'm not sure they're quite as corporate as we think. Yet. But, yeah, yeah. proof will be in the pudding. And I don't know if it's like that once they step outside British, uh, outside of the UK either. So it, it'll be an intriguing example. I'd like to ask you actually a question, if I could. I'm picking your brain more than anything else. You talked about a lot of the, the Brisbane and surrounds brewers contract brewing. Where are they currently contract brewing? There have been a number of uh, breweries that have opened up that have excess capacity. So, you know, there are mm-hmm. places that are brewing, like Slipstream. Ian Watson uh, and Slipstream brew quite a few uh, beers um, under contract for um, some of the smaller places or some of the con- for some of the contract-only labels. Um, yeah, Four Hearts does some. Um, there, there are quite a few. It, a lot of it is genuine cuckoo, where you're sort of laying your yeah, eggs yeah. in somebody else's nest because they've got excess capacity. Um, so, uh, but there isn't, there isn't an equivalent of brew pack or no, no, or the like. Okay, okay, that's what I was curious on, and just because oh, I, I was up in Brisbane a few months ago and was finally went and stumbled into Newstead and was stunned by the signs of it. Um, does Newstead do a lot of contract for others or are they actually doing that amount of volume? Their volume is growing. I don't think they do contract, but they do a lot of collaboration. So their Newstead um, brewery, the, the, the original Newstead brewery is very much a collaboration centre where they you know, seem to be popping out um, one-off and collaborative beers uh, very, very regularly. Okay. Yeah, I was just I was surprised by this. I'm talking the one across the road from the rugby stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's a big one. No, I don't. I don't believe they do uh, contract brewing there. Surprised more than anything. That's fine. It's, it's certainly capable we, of putting a lot of beer out. Yeah, that's what that's what surprised me. And I guess you know that's the us down in Mexico who don't understand what happens up there. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't realise quite how big they were. All right, we might quickly go and Matt letter in the mailbag this week. Uh, to matt at brewsnews.com.au and please send in your feedback or your comments or anything you might agree or disagree with. Now, this is from uh, Landon Moss. Hi, Matt. Love listening to your show. He lives in East East Gippsland, so out my way. Did did you notice that um, he refers to it as my show, Prof? Yeah, I just actually just uh, just glazed over that, actually. I live in East Gippsland, so it gives me a great insight into what's happening in the beer world as we are fairly isolated from it down here. Uh, the purpose of me writing this is to share a major gripe I have and is one of the reasons I love craft beer in cans so much. With all this being said about packaging and beer freshness, I think this is relevant. All right. Most of the craft beer available locally and most affordable comes in bottles, and I find after the first swig, all I can taste is metal or, to be more precise, rust. This ruins the whole beer and I feel ripped off. There is not always a glass handy, and I shouldn't have to wipe down every bottle before I take a drink. IMO, in my opinion. Is this something you've come across? Really makes me angry when I forget to wipe the bottle, especially when they are from quality breweries, and he named some. Would be interested to hear your thoughts. Rust on bottles. Have you encountered this, Matt? I have to say, I have in the past. Uh, sometimes I've probably noticed it after I've poured the beer out and put the bottle down and just sort of noticed, um, particularly on the brown bottle, you kind of get that ochre, you know, reddish ochre tinge that just sort of jumps out a bit yeah look and he included a photo i'll pop the photo into the show notes um it, it it's an interesting one i 
I've sent the photo and the details off to a couple of uh, packaging managers to, to get their opinions because I wasn't sure whether it was uh, an, an issue with the crown seal, you know, maybe uh, rusting from the crown seal or, you know, just poor bottling hygiene where it, it's not been rinsed um, properly. And so you've just, because you, when, when the, the bottle fobs and there's a little yeah. bit of beer left on the, on the top that if the crown seal goes over that, because it looks like it's actually growing around the edge of the crown seal, which to me would indicate that something's leaked out um, or alternatively hasn't been washed away and maybe grown. Yeah, so I thought it was the the crown seal. You know, with some uh, some packaging machines, you know, there's a like a hand fed hopper that the the crown seals go into, rather than you know a long sort of narrow tube that they all go into one at yep. a time. Um, and that perhaps they've been sterilised or washed or whatever, and so there's a little bit of moisture on the um, the, the metal edge of the crown seal. And that then kind of gets um, locked on, but the obviously the little crimps mean that there's a little bit of exposure to air outside of the bottle, not necessarily inside the bottle, mm. and that that's causing the rust. So I, as I, it's not something I've ever been worried about, but it's not something I've ever really thought about to this extent. And I think we probably should yeah look into it. So you, you've you've got feelers out with with production managers. I do, I do, and it, yeah, but it, it, it's it's one of those things. Some people are particularly susceptible to certain certain flavours, and this might be one that uh, Landon is uh, susceptible to because you know more often I hear people saying I can't drink beer out of cans because of the metallic taste. So it it it, it feels much you know it, it's interesting to have the reverse um, said with bottles. So uh, yeah, look, and as he makes the point, you can't always have a glass, no matter how uh, you know, much of a a you know sort of beer aficionado you want to make of yourself. Um, so uh, yeah, no, we, we will. Uh, Take that question under advisement, Landon, and uh, get back to you. But in the meantime, you are the Beer Cartel uh, Letter of the Week. There you go. Congratulations. Well done, Landon. Follow his lead, people. Send us in a letter. As I say, we do have one that's just come in, which we'll um, we'll hold over till next week because it's only just come in, so we haven't sort of had a chance to get through it. And we don't want to keep our listeners any longer, nor do we want to keep Associate Professor Andre Samartino, who's um, very graciously been our guest today, and I'm sure he's got far more important things to do now. Uh, Andre, thanks very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, guys. Thanks, Andre. It's been a great chat. We've been I've been uh, reading your articles uh, for quite a bit of uh, quite a long time, and uh, you. I've been enjoying your insights, so it's been great for, to have you on to share them. Oh, I should have said earlier, I'm a long-time listener, so I, uh, I'm not looking forward to hearing my own voice on here, but I'll probably still listen in this week. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you do actually Thanks. enjoy, if you have enjoyed the experience, then uh, Matt and I will take all the credit. Um, if you didn't, then uh, blame my brother-in-law, Chris, who uh, works at the same fine institute yeah. of academia that you do and who was the one who uh, convinced me to send out the invitation. I'll drop Chris a line to thank him. Cheers, guys. <laughs> no worries. And thank you very much, listeners. Thanks very much for joining us on uh, Good Brews Week this week. We'll do it all again next week. But until then, drink fresh, drink local. But at, at the end of the day, drink whatever makes you happy. And we're out.